0: realize, if I screw this up, thousands of people won't be able to feed their kids, send them to college, pay their mortgage. The mission wasn't as self-actualizing as defending the country, but it was certainly an important, critical, vital mission for everybody that's going to work for you. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, Coaching and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter.
1: Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's J.R. Flatter. As always, I'm here with my co host, Lucas.
2: Good morning.
1: He's our millennial voice in this podcast. And we have the honor of having a distinguished guest today, Mr. William. Tody or Captain Tody as you might informally call just a reminder of who our audience is leaders of complex organizations that are trying to compete and succeed in the 21st century hyper competitive labor market and uh, it's our assessment that that's not going anywhere it's going to be hyper competitive and it's global freelance all those things so this is the opportunity for you to talk about yourself and the great work that you're doing so I'll toss it over to you and one of the few times in your life I'd ask you to brag about yourself.
0: Well, you know, thank you, John. I, I got to tell you that I'm um, never comfortable doing that. One of the hallmarks of leadership needs to be not making it about yourself, but making it about those on your team. And after you've been beating that down for decades, it's kind of hard to start doing it again. But I understand that there's a need to establish credibility and, and you know, have the Listeners understand why they should listen to me. And so I've had to do that a little bit more than I'm comfortable with, and I'll do it today. But I spent 26 years on active duty in the U.S. Navy. I was an operator guy, not an acquisition guy, although I danced around the acquisition world a lot, which gave me more, more of a belief that I understood industry than I should have had, right? So I was, it was a false belief that I understood how industry works by being around them while I was on active duty. I did three tours in the Pentagon, total of nine years, you know, we're overseeing companies and things like that. And then when I made the transition industry in 2006, I took all of the same military training, what was called in, in the day, transition assistance program courses and other similar courses in order to try to understand what my life on the other side of the uniform would be like and again that further reinforced these notions that i had all the skills i needed all the ability all the training everything i needed to succeed in industry and what i learned when i actually made the transition despite being an oh six fairly senior active duty officer is that many of the skills that i had were not appropriate for industry so that was problem number one even my leadership skills you know I joke with my active duty colleagues that leading is hard, but it's even harder when you're leading people who can actually quit. And so, you know, I had to recalibrate myself. Fortunately, I kind of understood that I was new to this new world. I was no longer the 06. I was now an 01 equivalent in in this new world. There were 20-something-year-olds who knew way more than I did when I entered it in my mid-40s. And so, you know, I did sublimate, subjugate, whatever it is, the Personality and the ego, and, and said, Okay, I'm starting all over again. I got to acknowledge that. But then the level of knowledge that I had to gain was substantially greater than what I expected to have to gain. And so, as I relearned these lessons, now learn them for the first time about how industry works and what it was going to be like, what I finally figured out after years was that nearly everything I had been told. While on active duty during that transition training was wrong. It took me over a decade to understand why it was wrong. And the reason it's wrong is what the military wants to do more than anything when they're causing people to transition is they want them to feel good about their military career. And they want them to feel that the lessons they learned in the military are going to translate directly to industry. And the truth is, not so much. And in fact, many of those skills and behaviors are counterproductive to industry. So, what I said about doing at that point is trying to, well, h- trying to hire as many military veterans as I could, also trying to help them understand that everything that they've been told was I will use the word a lie. It wasn't intent to deceive, but it was in, with intent to make them feel good about where they were. And so what I ended up doing is trying to hire people that had the right attitude about learning skills they needed to learn to succeed the folks who came in with chips on their shoulders you know with um an inappropriate degree of confidence about their skills you know i i learned very quickly that those would not be good hires and you know i looked at the problem through a new framework and a new lens and ended up writing a book about it actually when i was halfway into my ceo tour working my way up from director level to CEO level, is when I decided I needed to write this stuff down in order to spread the word more rapidly. Because I was, although I was counseling future potential employees, doing this on a one-off basis was not efficient or effective. I needed to touch thousands of potential future employees, not just for my company, but for other companies, in order to help them be better employees. And so that's kind of a summary of how I got where I am today.
1: No, that's good stuff. And Lucas, remind me, we have to get Bill to come and talk to us again offline because we do Geotap, actually, General Officer Transition Assistance. So it'd be great to have you look at that curriculum and see where we might make some improvements.
0: Yeah, I actually have a section of my book for general officers. So for the demographic in particular, that is there's, there's a great book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And the premise of the book is that the more successful you are in your past life, the more potential you have to fail in your future life, because you're going to make assumptions regarding your past successes and how they will relate to your future successes that are inappropriate and untrue. And so what I found is that in many cases, the general officers transition at a rate that's worse than... The junior officers. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very interested in that demographic. I have personally counseled dozens, maybe close to 100 geos over the past, I'd say, 10 years or so. Uh, and I did include a, a section on geos in my book. Talk to us a little bit about that book, because Lucas and I work in, in this labor
1: market. We work with a lot of veterans. And it seems like every dog and his brother's got the the perfect answer for the transitioning veteran. So talk to us about how you look at it. Mm -hmm. And and so you've you've reminded me I've been meritoriously demoted twice. I was meritoriously demoted from staff sergeant to second lieutenant. And then again, from major to CEO of a a one-person company. So, yeah, I've lived the life you're describing. So talk to us about that a little bit, if you don't
0: mind. There's a lot that people come into industry with that um, sets them back rather than helps them leap forward. And the ones that recognize that and acknowledge that early on in their careers are going to do quite well. In fact, I I tell my industry, never served industry friends. You're never going to have, as long as you invest what you need to invest to make the veteran employee successful, they will be your best employees. Please understand that. To begin, higher potential for success. You know, once they learn how to adjust to leadership techniques, better leaders, you know, great strategic outlook, great work ethic. There's all these wonderful things that will happen, but they're not going to happen automatically because these folks are going to fall back on the training they had received previously. That's what military people do, they fall back on their training. And if the training is inappropriate to the current environment, they're going to fall back on inappropriate training. And you have skin in the game. You're spending money on these new employees. It is in your vested interest to make sure they succeed well. In fact, when I first recognized there was a defect between, I call it an impedance mismatch in the book, between what the veterans expect from their new employer and what the employers expect from their new veteran employees, when I first understood that, the first channel I tried to work to correct this imbalance or this mismatch was the military services themselves. I went to the offices that own the transition training to try to help them understand that the training that they're provided is is inappropriate and and ineffective. They didn't care. (laughs) I mean, I'm gonna be brutally honest here. They were not incentivized to help veterans succeed. They were incentivized to pump veterans through the pipeline. That was what they're incentivized to do. They didn't even have a mechanism by which they could measure the degree to which veterans were succeeding in their two, three years down the road. They had no idea. And they frankly didn't care. So hit that brick wall. Then I decided to to work with the nonprofits, the the ones that purport to train veterans for their work in in industry. And the problem I found there was they, they have the right motivation. They have the right desire. They want to do well. And most of the people working in the offices responsible for veteran transition training went straight from active duty into those nonprofits. In other words, never worked a day in their life in a for-profit company the vast majority of veterans, the kind the vast majority of veterans will find themselves in. So they also became the blind leading the blind, just like the military services were the blind leading the blind. They didn't know how wrong some of their advice was. So I, I continue to work with or those, some of those organizations to try to help them correct the message. But much of my theme is tough love to those transitioning veterans. I'm telling you, you know, you're going to be misled by the services, by these organizations that tell you how wonderful your military experience is going to be in your future life. You're going to be misled. And here's the truth. The truth is it can be wonderful if you start adjusting the way you use it, and, and modifying the skills. But if it's not, it's going to be a train wreck. Over 50% of veterans who join industry leave their first job within two years. If the system was working, that would not be a fact. The system is clearly not working. And so that's the kind of corrective you know, advice I'm trying to give. And again, nonprofits like Moa call me the tough love guy. Because I'm, I, I'm, I tell it the way it is, right? Learn early and you will f- not fail late. And that's, that's the kind of message I'm trying to convey. But it's with everything from how you write your resume. You know, you'd be surprised at how many veteran written resumes result in business executives laughing. To how you interview, to your compensation expectations, to how you do your negotiation, to how you adapt to the future company's culture, to what the company measures itself on, what performance really means when you're in industry, to your role in it. Everything from soup to nuts uh, in one book It was quite a challenge.
2: So earlier we kind of mentioned um, the importance of you know, lifetime learning and you know, having that attitude of growth. So when you're kind of transitioning from one organization to another, you have that an extrinsic motivation like, oh, maybe your school, your college, your university, or the military is telling you, get this training and learn this. So when you transition, um, do you have any advice for people to kind of have that motivation to learn be more intrinsic? Like, um, how do you keep that alive after you leave
0: in an organization? Well, the first thing I tell them is, be very, very careful who you listen to, who you get advice from. And schools will tell you you need to go to get an MBA, MBA or a business degree of some sort. Schools are incentivized to sell education, right? They're not incentivized to make you successful. And in most cases, I've hired dozens, maybe 100 MBAs over the course of my 15 years, 16 years in industry. And in most cases, what they learn in their MBA training or their business degree training isn't the way the company does it so the first bit of advice i give is you've already spent enough of your life outside of industry don't waste any more years get in there cuz you're competing with people that have been in industry since from their 20s and whatever age whether you did 4 years in the military or 30 years in the military you're entering industry way later in terms of age than your peers So the the more you delay that transition into an actual job, the further behind you are. So that was the first bit of advice I give to folks, is get in there, learn how the company does business and start adapting. The second thing is the notion that you can double your pay in a day when you transition industry can be true if you're motivated by the coin, right? It can be true, but only if you succeed. So that needs to be an intrinsic self-motivating factor too, because the money in industry can be much better than the money, not always, by the way, not always. It depends on what you did in the military, but assuming that you want to get into leadership and management and things like that, it can be better. So if you're motivated by the coin, let that be the self-motivating factor, but only if you pay attention to the lessons that I try to present and, and, you know, take that step off into your next life the third thing is the stability is wonderful right so i did seven deployments during my active duty career you know missed many christmases missed many birthdays and things like that you know in industry if if stability is what you're looking for you can find it but not if you're jumping around from job to job every couple years tends to be the trend nowadays i tell folks that When you got to get your mind right, when you take that first job, think that you're going to be there for at least five years. That does two things for you. First, it it kind of tries to override the P.C.S. itis that we develop on active duty, where after two or three years we start itching for that next assignment. Right? That that can be very destructive, and that's not a good thing when you're in industry. And the second thing it does is it it gets your company to understand that this guy seems to gal. Seems to be in it for the long term. Why do you want the company to believe that? Because they're not going to invest in you if they think you're you're a butterfly and you're going to be jumping off after 18 months or two years. You want it to join a company that's willing to invest in you. And the only way they're going to be willing to invest in you if they see a return on their investment in you. And so those are the kinds of things I, I, I try to tell people that they have to think about as they make that first transition.
1: So I'm an employer. We're an employer. Lucas and I have a company. It's kind of frightening to say I've been retired as long as I was on active duty this year. Crazy. What do you tell me as an employer as I'm trying to do the right thing and, and hire these transitioning veterans who have served their country? What can I do to increase my success?
0: You understand that they're not going to come to you knowing what they need to know. I talked about the fact that I tried to intervene with the military services to improve their transition training. When that failed, I tried to intervene with the nonprofits who pride themselves on doing transition training. When that failed, quasi-failed, it, it occurred to me that the people that real, with the real skin in the game, with investment, <laughs> were invested in the success of those veteran employees were the companies. So what I've done is the most successful approach I've found so far is to talk to the companies and particularly the companies that don't know a lot know that they want to hire veterans, most of it for altruistic reasons. Although we ought to be honest with ourselves about the the, the impression that a lot of companies have about veteran employees and the impact that has on what kind of jobs they're willing to put those veteran employees in. We could speak about that in a moment if you want. But I've approached the companies and advise them that it's in their own best interest to make sure their veteran employees transition well. And here are the misconceptions they're going to come in with. You need to develop veteran transition training programs to help your veterans succeed for new employees. And, you know, it's also helpful to to establish veteran employee resource groups, the ERGs. Like, you know, my first company I joined was Raytheon, and they had an ERG for, raytheon american indians you know black engineers an erg for everything except veterans and so getting an erg where veterans can learn from each other as they become employees at that company and share secrets about how to adapt to the culture and things like that the differences they find that's a really important step and so those are the kinds of things i'm doing nowadays with companies but you know as i mentioned a minute ago One of the first things that surprised me I needed to overcome was a misunderstanding of what veteran employees would be like for those employers, because a lot of them believed that they were doing this employing veteran business as a service, not because it was going to help them, but because it it was the right thing to do altruistically. And the reason they believe that is what I call the generation kill syndrome, whereas the only thing they know about military veterans is what they've learned by watching the HBO miniseries Generation Kill. And that's what they think they're going to get when they hire a veteran. And that absolutely prejudices the kind of jobs they're willing to, to provide to those veterans.
2: When we talk about coaching, it's often kind of like the individual approach. Um, what does the coach need? Um, having the leader lead us and not you know, prescribe a solution necessarily. So when you look at kind of like from an organizational standpoint, how much of it is paying individual attention to the hires versus you know, setting up that ERG and kind of having it built into the organization?
0: well every veteran is unique so there's some some aspect to this that need to be dealt with on a person by person basis but the truth is that many of the defects that that are inculcated into i would say the vast population of veterans are it's done systemically they are structural defects the way we learn to lead the way we learn to the way we learn to learn you know the way we go about solving problems. Many of these are perfectly, I would say, fine tuned to an operational environment that doesn't exist, oftentimes doesn't exist in industry, sometimes does. By the way, you know, in one of my industry jobs, I had to deal with an active shooter situation. And I talk about that in the book as well. That absolutely demanded these operational skills that I learned on active duty. So so you can't filter everything out. But in the vast majority of cases, your theme of the podcast is coaching, right? In the vast majority of cases, you've got to adapt a more coaching style, both of leadership and of interface with your other employees and learning style. And, you know, in many cases, for example, you know, I joke about the fact that um, when I joined my first company, I've already mentioned was Raytheon. They said, Bill, we think you would benefit from taking part in our leadership development program. Now, imagine I was a mid-40s served brigade commander in, um, in Navy language. It was ship squadron commander, Commodore, right? Served Commodore. And here's a 32-year-old HR person telling me that I could benefit from leadership development training. And, you know, I could have taken that you know, kind of gotten my hair on fire. You know, a little bit of a prissy attitude with him, or said, "There's something I must be missing here." Right? He knows what I've done in, in the military. What am I? Missing? Okay, well, Jim, if you think I can benefit from that, let's let's go for it. All right, fine. Swallow the pride and and listen. And I did. And what it turned out to be is a leadership vision creation. Training program, not a how to lead people so much as a how to create a leadership vision for your business and then articulate that vision and execute the articulated vision. It was extremely useful, and I would never have known that if I would have gotten gotten up in arms and said, "No, um, thank you very much. I'm I have I'm perfectly fine with my leadership experience." <laughs> and so. Those kinds of things, you need to sub, sublimate the ego and be willing to accept the fact that you may not know everything about this new environment you found yourself in.
1: No, I love that. You're reminding myself of in 2012 in, in our local community here, I asked to be a mentor in a leadership program, and the CEO said, why don't you join the leadership program? And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, did you read my resume? (laughs) You know, I have a doctorate in leadership I've been leading. I'm a CEO. But it was one of the greatest things I ever did. I mean, I'm right there with you, Bill. Uh, Eye-opening in a room with a a room full of bankers and lawyers and lawnmower salesmen. And so you said the magic words a few seconds ago, coaching style of leadership. I mean, that's what Lucas and I are are all about. And actually, uh, we're working with the DOD to help them create a coaching style of leadership. We train coaches for the DOD. And they go out and they coach and they serve as ambassadors of coaching. So give us your definition of a coaching style of leadership versus what you might define as a military style of leadership.
0: There are many, many military styles of leadership, and I don't want to make it sound like it's this or that. You know, there's the authoritarian or autocratic style of leadership that's generally required when you're in an operational situation, you have to take that hill, right? You don't have time for debate. You've got to go do it. And, and like I said, even that is sometimes useful in the industry. I found myself in a situation with that active shooter with, you know, 50 or so employees potentially exposed to an active shooter situation where that came in handy. That authoritarian, this is what we're going to do. You go do this. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. No time for debate. There are other leadership styles in military and in this industry, frankly, right? It's a, not everybody in the industry is good and not everybody in the military is bad as it pertains to industry. It's, it's more of a gregarious personality based style of leadership, but we could all think of famous military leaders over time. You know, the Navy example would be Halsey, the Army example would be MacArthur, where it was all about the personality, right? And, and about drawing the focus to themselves. And you know, the unit doesn't succeed unless I succeed, that kind of thing. And we all, we've all seen those guys, mostly guys, in the military. I guess there are probably a few women leaders that are that way as well, but almost all of them that I've encountered were male. The style of leadership that's the most successful is the one that I wouldn't say devalues self but doesn't focus on self that focuses on the mission and brings the whole team along with you on the mission. Now from a people standpoint, the largest company I've led had 6,000 plus employees. It takes a lot of work to bring 6,000 employees along with you. As you're leading the organization, the, Irony is that the largest military unit I led had all, just over a thousand sailors. You know, so in industry, I've led much larger, multi-billion-dollar companies with many thousands of employees. Much higher degree of leadership responsibility than I had in the military. The other irony is you have a whole lot more responsibility in industry. This is something that it never occurred to me because in the military, number one, I didn't get to hire my employees. Number two, I didn't get to decide what the mission was going to be. Number three, I didn't control the budget. I just executed. I was assigned a task, and then I executed. All those things when I was CEO or president of a company. I controlled the budget. I decided what the mission was going to be. I did the hiring. I did the firing. I had way more responsibility in industry than I did in the military. It never occurred to me that that would be the case. And so there's a certain degree of gravitas that goes along with that. You realize. If I screw this up, thousands of people won't be able to feed their kids, send them to college, pay their mortgage. Thousands of people. That is never true. In the military, very rarely we find ourselves in a position where if you screw it up, people are going to die. But that's like 1% of military people that find themselves in that position. In industry, almost every industry leader at some point in their career is going to be in that position where their success or failure is going to determine whether people can eat. So it's a much higher level of gravitas than I had ever imagined happening in industry rather than in the military. So these are all kind of congealing factors that cause you to think really hard about what you're doing and taking, you know, people say, "Well, I lost the sense of mission when I left the military. My God, I didn't. It was a different mission. But I didn't lose the sense of mission. The mission wasn't as self-actualizing as defending the country, but it was certainly an important, critical, vital mission for everybody that's going to work for you.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you said that Is, I know my own story and I, I know a lot of the veterans that work with us. Getting your head around that idea that revenue has to exceed expense, whereas you've lived your entire adult life. If I don't execute my full budget, I'm fired.
0: Or I'm going to lose the money.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as I transitioned out of the CEO chair seven or eight years ago into the chairman role and put a a new CEO in the chair, it took me about 18 months to, to really come to the idea that it is noble. What you just described is noble, creating jobs for people. And in order to do that, revenue has to exceed expense and be happy and comfortable with
0: that. In the book, I talk about the movie Wall Street, where there's that famous line, greed is good. And I say that was a Oliver Stone typical making a statement kind of speech. But the point is, profit is good, right? Maybe greed isn't good, but profit is good. So you could thumb your nose at it all you want and belittle the notion, but it's what drives the economy. It's what drives the global, you know, capital markets. It it, it and it's it's critical. You will not succeed if. Revenue doesn't exceed expense, as you say. And by the way, I have a chapter on what that means in the book for people who are new to this whole notion. And, you know, what is profit? What's the difference between profit and cash, for example? And why are both important? And so these are the kinds of things that when I was transitioning, there was a there were two courses. There was one for senior military leaders that was separate from the general transition assistance program. The one for senior military leaders was taught by a contractor who had been teaching this course for decades and really didn't know a thing about what he was talking about. But he tried to pretend that he was going to train us on what profit and loss was all about. And by the way, in two days, we were going to learn everything we needed to know about profit and loss so we would understand industry. And it was, it was horrible. And I say this all the time. It's a wonder I survived with all of the bad training that I got. And same, same thing for the 200,000 military veterans who transition every year. It's a wonder any of us survive with the horrible training that the military gives you as we're leaving. I'm
2: curious, just because this is on the brain, um, we're all three fathers. Um, talk about a job that you're not ready to transition to with incredible r- responsibility as raising a human being. Would you say that your transitions, your, your leadership experience in military and in industry has taught you or given you any perspective on being a parent?
0: Well, I was a parent before I was a senior military leader. So maybe the opposite actually happened. I learned, more, I learned a lot by being a parent that I leveraged as a senior military leader before I joined industry. Both of them are gut-wrenching experiences, aren't they? You know, where you say, if I screw this up, it has potentially decades-long consequences screw up this person's life and the life of anybody who follows this person. And so yeah, you, you take them seriously. And and being a parent needs needs to be your primary responsibility. And and now we say that. And then when it's time to go off and go on, on deployment, we go off and go on deployment. Right. And so are we being honest with ourselves when we say that nothing is more important than being a parent. Because we all had the option to do something different at every point in our military career. And we didn't. We elected to stay in the military for whatever reason, personal or because you really believed in the mission, as I did, right? And so the, you had to make sacrifices. Your family had to make sacrifices. In many cases, they're making more sacrifices than we did. And so that's true when you're a leader as well, whether it's a leader in the military, or a leader in industry, you're going to make personal sacrifices. If you don't, if you aren't willing to make personal sacrifices to make your company or your organization better, then you're not going to do well as a leader. And so, yeah, that, that understanding the need to make those sacrifices is very important in your transition, and in, your, in your journey, whether you're a parent, a military person, or an industry leader.
2: Thank you. That's vulnerability that, you know, it's good to hear from a military leader like that. Thank you.
1: So I remember flying back from Bahrain, sitting next to the vice admiral who was running military Sealift command. His advice to his admirals was, be kind to your commanders because you're going to be working for them very soon. So as I mentor and work with veterans who ask, when should I get out? When should I start preparing? For me, I think there's two paths and I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. I tell them, are you going to, get out to make beer money and fish or are you going to get out to launch an aggressive second career? And that's, this is for careerists, not necessarily first-termers. What are your thoughts on when is the right time to get out?
0: I have a big part of an entire chapter on that very question because there's pros and cons to both. When I was, so first of all, I, I never intended to make the military career. It was one of those, in fact, I, I'll say I lied to my wife. uh, (laughs) When when I proposed to her, I told her I was going to get out. I'm an Annapolis class of 1979, and our motto was out the door in 84, which was our five-year tour was up in 84, so out the door in 84. And we got married in 83, and I said I was going to get out in 84. And then the Navy dangled a very enticing next assignment to me. Well, I'll just stay in for this one. I'll stay in for this one. I'll stay in for this one. It kept happening that way. And before I knew it, I was approaching 20. And then it was like, holy cow, I think I'm really liking this. And so I, the rest of it to 26, I stayed in, not because they kept dangling great, although they did keep dangling great assignments. At that point, I was committed. The first point you made about, you know, someday you're going to be working for the person that you're, that's working for you now. The first time I ever had that notion was when I was Commodore of a submarine squadron. and on 05, at the time was a gentleman by the name of John Rich Richardson. So he was junior to me. I was an 06. he was an '5. but I, this guy was so impressive I knew that if I'd stayed in the Navy long enough, I 'd be working for him. But again, he's probably 42-ish, and I 'm 45 or 46 at this time. And sure enough, he went on to become CNO. So know it it's very obvious with some people that If you stay in long enough, you're going to be working for them. What I tell people in industry, that person can be 30 years old, unlike the military, right? So your boss, the guy who's working for you today, who's 30 years old, could become your boss tomorrow. This is one of the wonderful things about being in in industry is that when you're ready, you're ready, and, and people will put you in a job, regardless of age. You don't have to wait for your lineal number sequence to come up. You don't have to wait for Senate confirmation. If there's an opening and they think you're the best candidate, they're putting you in the job. So it's way more true in industry than it was in the military. But the age to get out, when I was approaching, as I said, my mid-40s, I started thinking, look, do I want a viable second career or do I want to go for this flag thing, general officer thing? Because it occurred to me that a viable second career takes something like 20 years, particularly if you want to reach what we call those peak earning years. It takes years to get to that point where you are at your peak earning years. And I said, if I get out any, industry is not allowed to talk about age, but let's be realistic here. If I have less than 20 years of what's called runway in my next career, the chances that I will advance to the level that I'm hoping to advance is going to be diminished for every year I wait to make that transition. And so I made the decision to jump at that, you know, mid-40s point. And so turns out that, yeah, industry leaders will assume that you're going to retire when you approach 65. Therefore, the closer you are to that age of 65, the less they they see opportunity for return on their investment in you. So I go through this in great detail in the book. There's advantages to getting out in your 20s because you have more time in industry to, to rise to that senior level but for every guy that i saw who served on active duty for one tour got out and rose to a senior level i see thousands of guys and gals who got out after one tour 30 years later they're essentially in the same job they went nowhere right so the fact that you get out younger does not mean you're going to ascend to that level that you're hoping to ascend the advantages of being more senior particularly if you go into the defense industry, is that they see that you have more insight into where the defense world is going. Even if you're not going into the defense industry, there's still people who think that you're going to have a head start on leadership because you've been a senior military leader. Companies, the first job offer I had was to run a horse racetrack. It had nothing to do with the military, but the owner of the horse racetrack was a D-Day veteran and he had this Glorified image of O sixes, military O sixes, regimental commanders in the Army in his memory, right? Brigade commanders today, things like that, or senior Navy battleship commanders in his memory. And so I didn't take that job, but he was definitely looking for a retiring 06 to fill the position. So there's advantages and disadvantages to each, but the one key factor you have to keep in mind is if you want to be a leader in industry you need to join a company who's willing to invest in you. And for that company to be willing to invest in you, they need to believe they're going to get enough years out of you to get a return on their investment. If you're 55, they're probably not going to believe that. They're going to get enough years on you. And this is why I advise, this is the danger of transitioning as a general or an admiral, because you're going to be at that age where they're going to basically want you to Perform now and then discard you after a few years, after your Rolodex gets empty, right? You're going to be a marquee hire for a few years and then they're going to let you go. That's the truth. I'm the tough love guy, right? So I tell the truth. That's the truth about transitioning as a general or an animal. So earlier you mentioned in passing
2: MacArthur real quick, and I'm reading an Eisenhower biography and so i'm like oh i actually know who that is this time um, yeah is there any leader um you know either in history you know fictional or or in historical military or not you look up to and
0: why are there a good example of leadership easy answer number one chester nimitz read about chester nimitz there's a new book called nimitz at war it's a really good book but but he came in he. Buried his ego. Here's a guy who commanded the greatest fleet the world has ever known, will ever known. And he did it with grace and panache and had great strategic vision and had to deal with personalities like MacArthur and Halsey, these huge personalities. He had to, he had to cooperate without, with them even when they had stupid ideas. He had to deal with Admiral King, his boss, who was a maniac. He had good vision, but was a maniac and was, had very poor leadership skills. And he had a you know, make all this work. And nobody in history, in my mind, has done it with better effectiveness and clarity of vision than Chester Nimitz.
1: Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or review review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.